Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. I'm your host, Chris Sands, and today we're back in the studio and we're joined by Brett Robison, one of the co-founders of Silver Branch Brewing Company. Thanks for stopping by, Brett. Thanks, Chris. I'm uh, happy to be here. So is it the two of you, you and Christian, or are there other people that are involved? Yeah, it's just two of us that are the uh, managing members. And you are, um, you're focusing on more of the front of the house, is that correct? And then Christian is the guy sweating in the back with the... In the, around all the hot tanks and or I guess not the tanks aren't hot but the kettle is yeah I I joke that um, he's the guy that makes the beer and I'm the guy that talks about it <laughs> <laughs> fundamentally our roles fall into that kind of loose those two <laughs> uh, loose uh, categories but ultimately we both do a ton of stuff sort of crossover in in each department so I feel like a lot of people probably think that he has the better job but I wholeheartedly think that you have the better <laughs> part of that arrangement <laughs> I get to do fun stuff like this today so I, I like this and I definitely prefer sitting around and talking about beer as opposed <laughs> to I mean, like brewing it is fun it's fun to do every once in a while but the I like to let other people handle that part and I'll handle the talking and drinking so uh, kudos to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm with you on that. Um, so if I remember correctly, when I met you, you talked about you have a, quite a history in the hospitality industries. So if you want to just give us a little bit of your background, um, what, what have you been doing and what led up to you starting Silver Branch? Sure. Um, so I'll go one round before uh, hospitality because uh, – Pretty much since I was 18, I've been in and out of restaurants and bars and nightclubs, uh, you know, until now. Um, my first job, I'll never forget, was a uh, uh, working at a cheesy nightclub lounge in northern New Jersey, and uh, that was a pretty insightful experience. But I went to school and graduated and actually worked in the financial world for a period of time, and um, it was something that... You know, when, when I was in college and I was uh, working at restaurants and stuff to support myself, I was like, you know, it, it just sort of was like a job to me at that time. And then I went and did what I thought I wanted to do the whole time and worked in the financial industry, got there and realized, wait a minute, I miss so much about this industry that, you know, for a while I was like, I could take it or leave it. And then having that experience and seeing what else is out in the world and then coming back to hospitality really was like kind of lit a fire under me in terms of like I have a sense of purpose for why I'm here now and what I want to ultimately accomplish. So were you doing like investment type financing or what, like banking or what, what category? So I started um, in the financial world while I was still in college actually at a private equity firm. Um, and then I, uh, transitioned to a, um, algorithmic equities and options trading role. Um, a lot of big words. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I went to, I I went to a uh, tech school. Um, so it was like 
my degree was essentially half business, half computer science. Okay. Yeah. I worked with, uh, I, I first moved to Maryland to work at Hughes Network Systems, and I worked with this brilliant guy that after a while working with him, I found out that he was, he had a PhD in nuclear physics, but he was a software engineer at Hughes. Before that, he worked on the Soviet Union's nuclear program, and then he left Hughes to go work for a large investment bank writing the so- their software, probably the type of things that you, the algorithm, the fancy stuff you said. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, um, I can't, you know, the funny thing was, was I definitely was not one of the uh, mega genius dudes who could create that stuff. Um, I think my strength was, I lived in a, my department was a very small team that sort of worked in between the engineers and the sales team. So I was on the sales floor, you know, for a big time financial firm in New York City, um, right next to all the traders, which are, you know, in front of five, six, seven computer screens or monitors. Um, but really I was, I was kind of like a translator, you know, I was like, I knew enough about engineering to be able to understand what was happening. And I knew enough about people to understand what they ultimately wanted. So you're like the translator. (laughs) And, and when you're dealing with, um, you know, uh, financial matters of that sort of size and scale and technicality and difficulty, you need a translator. And so that's kind of what I did. So all like the way you describe that all comes to my mind is me asking you, so what would you say you do around here? (laughs) (laughs) I I take the specs from the engineers and I go, (laughs) you know, I actually, uh, that falls in line with a joke that if, um, if I'm, you know, if, if, Silver Branch is as successful as I want it to be and as Christian wants it to be over the long haul, then I joke with my team uh, of managers that ultimately I'm going to be the most useless person in the building. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't matter because you're there from day one. You can, after a few years, you can be as useless as you need to be. (laughs) Well, I know that there's, you know, like I, uh, I, I've, I've sort of tried to make my whole career center around being a jack of all trades, which implies that you're a master of none. Um, and I'm a big believer in the 80, 20 Pareto principle, you know, and so I try to learn enough about a subject matter and get enough command over it to understand what's happening and then identify somebody who is better than me at that and excels at that thing and just throw gasoline on their fire and try to get them motivated to pursue that to the greatest degree. So to know just enough that you know who to hire to, (laughs) yes, to really make it happen. Yeah. Well, when they, when they throw, uh, when they start throwing things, you know, different, um, you know, maybe technical terms or otherwise at me, it's just kind of like, okay, like I understand what's happening in a big picture kind of way. And I understand, you know, what needs to happen moving forward, but I don't, I don't feel like I always have to concern myself with learning everything to the very highest degree because I have, I'm wearing too many hats for that to work. Yeah. So I've talked to a lot of people who formerly worked in finance. Is it that it's mind numbingly boring or is it ridiculously stressful or what is it about working in finance that makes so many people want to get out of it for me is it even just like you make so much money quickly that you can then go on to something else 
I think there's a couple of different things there. Um, you know, it's for me, it's not the stress because one going into hospitality, I would argue, um, is just as, if not even more stressful than the financial world. So having lived that life for so many years, um, you know, people who can hang their own in hospitality, hold their own in hospitality. I have a immense amount of respect for it because it's just, it's intense. It's a hard thing to do. And I think it oftentimes gets shrugged off like, oh yeah, like, you know, like you'll see this with parents a lot. They're like, oh, my kid's a server bartender. And they, you know, somehow feel like they didn't reach their full potential or that's not what I ever hoped for them. But it's like, without that perspective of knowing what that's like and why that person is attracted to that and motivated by that. And, you know, I think some of the best people I've ever met in my entire life are hospitality professionals. I think in general, Americans as a culture have a very uh, weird, have very weird opinions on what we consider to be aspirational jobs or like the, what you who you should respect like what what professions are respectable and what are you've obviously settled for that or that's all you can handle yeah i couldn't agree more i mean um you know i i i made a willing choice right and there's a lot of reasons that sit underneath that and there's a lot of people out there that also make those willing choices and i i would say to your point um from just a moment ago stress is not (laughs) they're both very stressful so that wasn't that wasn't the the driving factor for me, um, you know. And I I felt very fortunate as a kid out of college. I was getting to see the inner workings of you know the financial epicenter of the world, um, and so the 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 work like the the things that we were learning about and the things that I was doing on a day to day basis were really cool. I think the element that was not so much for me was um, some of the cultural aspects of what came with doing finance in New York. Um, I've seen Wolf of Wall Street. So would <laughs> you know, it's it's a dramatized version, especially now because yeah. the floor is not what it once was, this, that, and the other. But there's more stuff that's real than, um, you know, it, it's not all drama. It's not all sensationalized by movies. Some of that stuff is as crazy as it appears. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, it was, it was, and it, it was kind of a moment in time where, you know, I was in my early twenties and everybody was like, wow, dude, you got this great job shortly after this, you know, massive financial crisis. And like, you're telling us now that you want to leave and you want to go <laughs> work in the catering department at a now defunct uh, brew pub in Northern Virginia. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it makes Good perfect sense. Choices, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, for me, it was, a, it, it was always about, um, you know, a cultural element, like, and, and knowing that I really missed the camaraderie that came with, you know, uh, you work a really crazy shift on the floor with somebody and you guys get off work and you go have a beer afterwards and it all sort of washes away and you kind of wake up and yeah, the hospitality community, at least uh, looking from the outside in Frederick seems to be a very tight knit group. So it, I, I could see even outside of your own, uh, restaurant brew pub or where you're working that you see 
the camaraderie outs just within the industry as a whole it seems it's a it's certainly like a binding element and kind of like a a badge that um people wear together and i think you you self-identify oftentimes with another hospitality professional because you on some level know what they've experienced or (laughs) you know they'll there's all these like instagram accounts that are like um server meme based accounts and i you know i don't really uh i don't really take care of tables anymore bartend um as much but you know, I, I love reading that stuff and laughing about it because everybody has been through one of those scenarios, you know? Um, I always feel depressed every time when, like, I run across someone posting something that, something along those lines, and the message is simply just, like, how much saying please and thank you to your server means to a server. Like, it just depresses me to think that there's so few people who are doing that 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 little action makes people feel good, so... I'm I'm positive I would never make it working in hospitality. <laughs> <laughs> if it were if it were up to me, it would be cool to have more from a perspective standpoint. Everybody just do like six months. If I could have a I don't uh, want to a government run <laughs> program where everybody has to work six months in some uh, service role, then uh, then I think we'd all be better for it. <laughs> I, I no, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> I, I don't like people. So, <laughs> so um, you left finance, and then you, where did you go directly to? Uh, so I took a job at um, a brew pub right in Leesburg. Uh, at the time, it was called Vintage 50. Uh, I, I heard of that. I, it, I believe it's changed ownership now, and it goes by a different name. Uh, but... So I pretty much left finance and I moved back into my dad's basement, um, you know, much to his dismay and was kind of like, dad, I got to do this. Um, I knew at that time that I wanted to open a brewery someday. Is that, is, was that in, was basically a house? It it was in a, it was in like a small little office building. It was right on, um, I'm thinking of a different place. It's, it's, it it was on, uh as you're driving into Leesburg from Ashburn, we'll say along route seven, there's a, uh, like I'm maybe like a road called like Catoctin circle, I think, or I think the brew pub is now called dog money. If I'm not mistaken, I think there's one okay. right there. Um, but you know, previous ownership and, um, actually a long time ago, uh, um, you know, a couple brewers that are around the Northern Virginia scene worked there for a while. Like Christie was there while I was there. Um, so I kind of, yeah, just moved into my dad's basement and that was the first place that gave me a job and they were like, we don't have room for you to do anything except work in catering, um, and haul boxes. And I think having a frame of mind going into that where every single day I was waking up and thinking, what can I learn today? Or what can I get from this experience today made, you know, 14 hour days in the summer catering for giant weddings, hauling boxes through hundred degree heat, somehow not as painful as that sounds. <laughs> Cause you know, it was, it was, uh, it was very much like a, I know I'm going to get something out of this. I know I'm going to learn something out of this. So then where, did, th- were you there when that closed or no? So I, um, you know, 
as uh, as much as my parents loved me, I think after a year of living in the basement, and um, which actually was an incredibly valuable year for me because I was solely focused on work and uh, learning about beer. So I kind of, you know, pretty much would go to work. Maybe I'd grab a beer with some friends, but then I'd come home. And it wasn't like I had like a, like, you know, a real adult life anymore, (laughs) which was weird because I had previously. And so I would just read books all day. I'd basically learn anything I could about beer in my off time. Um, and then from there, after a year, it was like, okay, I got to sort of re-enter, you know, society in a normal way for me. Start being an adult again. Yeah. Um, so I moved into, uh, DC and was fortunate enough to get, um, a bartending job at, uh, Trist in Adams Morgan, which I then kind of parlayed into like more of a head bartender role and got to, um, build my first beer program, um, and that was one that was the first time that I really got to start, uh, you know, establishing connections, learning about the industry from a buyer perspective um, and trying to put together a really cool beer program, which I think is another thing people don't people outside of the industry don't respect of how difficult that is, where it like we say I'm a beer buyer I'm like okay you you go buy beer so do I but it it's at least from talking to other ones it seems like it's actually an extremely complicated thing to do for a restaurant or for a beer store also yeah i i i could i don't have enough good things to say about talented beer buyers i mean they're they're you, you have to it's such a unique set of skills to be able to do that and and i would argue that pretty much all beer buyers whether they be for a bar or restaurant or even just an off-premise store the ones that are doing a really amazing job by design have to be jack of all trades because there's just so much that you're responsible for and then doing something that takes beer that other people are making and showcases it in a compelling way is you know I think, I think a lot of brewers, um, you know, recognize and understand how important those individuals are to the industry. I mean, I, you know, we certainly do. Yeah. When I said outside, I meant I was including breweries in the industry also, because I definitely think brewery owners have a lot of respect for beer buyers. Definitely. Especially because like, they often know the trends maybe even before a brewery is aware of what's going to happen. Well, if you look at the history of the um, Cicerone program, which is uh, you know something that I've invested um, just a lot of my own time and energy into over so many years, um, the people who first, I believe, really adopted it and were really adamant about doing it were kind of guys like me that were really ambitious, just interested beer buyers that, you know, wanted to know more. Um, and then kind of slowly and surely over time, what's happened is, is the, you know, the distributor side has made it such that they'll pay for a lot of their sales rep to get the first or oftentimes the second level of the Cicerone program. What level are you? I'm advanced. So three. So how many adjectives do you use when you describe a beer? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's funny. It, it depends on the scenario. 
So uh, I think like, you know, in casual conversation and drinking and hanging out in my real life, um, not that many. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I've always, uh, I can continue liking you then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I, there's, I have so much respect for that program and I have so much respect for what it does. And I have so much respect for anybody who takes it upon themselves to go through it. But I see me and my role with it, you know, how I interact with it is it's very much a personal endeavor. And so it's like, it's a challenge and I someday want to get the master level. Um, but it's not for anyone other than myself. I mean, you know, it's yeah, like a personal goal and, or it's the, so, you know, more, I, that's one thing I wish I, I could do better is describe beer. I, I can't taste a beer and then tell you what I taste in it. I, it's just, I've, I took, I think it was like a, four month long BJCP training class. I left it with the exact vocabulary that I went into (laughs) with it. I was able to say this is good or this is bad (laughs) or like more like me, like me don't like it. So while I really respect people who have very in tuned palates, I also find it really pretentious when some people just seem to take it a little bit too far. Well, I think for me, the too far line is when you start using descriptors that people can't understand. Yeah. That like with, when you're fir- when a normal person's first thought is how do you even have any idea what that tastes like? <laughs> right. Like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, saying something like, you know, I, I won't throw out specific terms cause somebody will hear this and then be <laughs> like, Hey, I can't believe you bash that term. Yeah. I use that all the time. But I think it's more about, um, kind of getting yourself into a position where you have the perspective on communicating to people. Yeah. And that's you at know, a much better level than I'm capable of. Cause I don't, I, every time someone asks me, like if I say I, like, I really like something, they're like, what did it tastes like? I was like, I don't know. It tastes really good. It tasted like good. That's I think that's, you know, as a, as a, as a brewer, that's what you're really looking for is you want people to enjoy your beer. And you want them to kind of like say, hey, I really enjoyed that, you know, and I think beyond that, it's nice when somebody wants to give you their unsolicited feedback with a paragraph of terminology. Um, (laughs) But, you know, uh, taste and perception and, you know, flavor, those are so um, 100% individual to that that person actually not even to that person to that person at that moment in time based on environmental factors and mood even to so i mean that and maybe that's why i have too many mood swings or something i can't (laughs) pinpoint what a flavor is well it yeah it you know i have a good friend that um a quick little aside hiked to uh, the bottom of the grand canyon and all they had for options were Bud Light or Tecate. And they got a Tecate. And they were like, they told me, they're like, in that moment, after that super long hike, that was the best beer I'd ever had. 
because they were, you know, profusely yeah. sweating at the bottom. Hot, and, sweaty, <laughs> tired. Yeah, like <laughs> I basically want something that's water but not yeah. water. <laughs> a Bud Light. The Bud Light choice probably also would have been the best beer that they ever drank. <laughs> exactly. So it is very much situational. And, you know, you're, you have, uh, you know, two sets of um, smell receptors uh, or there's several receptors within each area that you smell you have your um orthonasal and retronasal um smellers which is the front of your nose and the back of your throat and uh combined your smell profile is more unique than your own fingerprint which is 100 percent individual to or specific and unique to any individual in the world which is crazy to think about yeah so, um, are you interested in talking about Cicerone more? Cause I, I have a bunch of questions. Sure. Yeah, we can right. go there. So level one, that's, that's like servers, right? That's more of like, um, drinkware, um, temperature storage, like all those types of things. Is that, is my understanding of that correct? Yeah, it's, it's the basics of beer. It's, um, it's, it kind of begins to give you the perspective on, um, you know, what's out there you it's sort of like just beginning to open the door in terms of here's the wor wide world of beer and here's so many different things and so um that is an online exam that people take uh i forget the total time frame it's something like it's 60 questions in 30 minutes or something and so it's like you ca you have to know your stuff enough to be able to answer the questions yeah. within the time i feel frame. like i could probably pull that one off because that's more of just like technical beer knowledge right yeah it's it's like um if you have been interested in beer and just kind of been learning and drinking and are an enthusiast like uh you know you may want to brush up on like a few small things but absolutely that you could take that test today and probably pass all right and then level two what what is what kicks in on that one that's when it gets real um <laughs> and is that when you have to have a palate is that is the first time that you start doing. Um, so that's where I start failing. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, tasting. It's so funny because um, people have a perception that tasting is like either a skill that you have or one that you don't. And I actually think it's sort of like sports in that um, you just practice like in, and you practice with the intent of formulating those words. And, you know, it, I don't think that, I mean, there's probably a few individuals that are naturally very adept at this skill. But for me, uh, you know, every step of the way, I have failed the tasting portion at one point or another to get through each level. Um, and all you do is you just go back and practice. Um, so that one is, is definitely quite a bit harder. There's a sizable jump from the first level to the second. Uh, and you do off-flavor tasting, so... You develop your skill around pinpointing specific off flavors. Like diacetyl and uh, DMS yeah. and acid aldehyde and, you know, a whole variety of so other So I can't actually do that. So if you I'm can do that, then you're already, you know, several steps further ahead. And the fact that you did a BJCP class is a really good primer for getting yourself ready for, for that type of thing. Um, you write essays, you have to write a full essay about oftentimes beer and food pairing. You have to, um, you know, you, you have to answer a lot of short answer questions. You have to be pretty, pretty, you have to study very intently the BJCP guidelines. And so 
you know, Cicerone is kind of like the jack of all trades certification within the beer industry. Um, and it kind of, cause you have to know about beer and food pairing. You have to know about beer styles. You have to know about brewing ingredients and process. You have to know about keeping and serving beer. Um, and you know, you have to know about beer styles. So all five of those are kind of the, um, I believe those are the five major pillars of the program. Um, okay. I, we're going to take a real quick break to thank our sponsors and then, um, we'll talk about let, so there's level three and then master. Yeah. Right, so I want to find out how hard level three is. Um, and then we'll go back to actually talking what, what you're here to talk about silver branch. <laughs> okay, cool. A huge thank you to our presenting sponsor, Roast House Pub, which is located at 5700 Urbana Pike in Frederick, Maryland. If you have listened to this podcast before, you have definitely heard me go on and on about the beer dinners that Chef Nico creates. Simply put, they are amazing. But Roast House Pub has much more to offer. Their friendly staff is knowledgeable about beer and will help you choose from among the 20 beers they have on tap. In addition to the awesome beer selection, the food is always amazing. Make sure to follow them on Facebook, and check their website at www.roasthousepub.com to keep up to date on their constant stream of events. So actually, before we dive back into it, you can tell us about um, Glass Castle, because uh, while you're still sipping on beach drink, um, I've been in a room all morning that the AC isn't working, uh, which seems to be trickling into the studio at this point, so... I'm drinking a little more quickly. So um, tell us about Glass Castle. Sure. Um, so Which is a cool name. Thank you. Yeah. It, uh, it, I'll tell you about the name first, actually. Um, it, it's, I would like to think that it's a byproduct of this whole exercise that we went through where uh, our original name for the brewery, we uh, got a cease and desist letter. And in that process, we had to start really learning how to name things and what goes into it. And we kind of turned it into a little bit of a science about why certain things sound good versus why other things don't. And then beyond that, it's what story or context can I attach to it? And so the hard, um, the ass part of glass and the uh, ass part of castle, the the hard as consonant back to back like that, it it just sounds good, like it flows off the. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's because for the a hole that sent <laughs> that sent you the cease and desist. <laughs> yes, we'll say that too. <laughs> um, but yeah, so thanks. I uh, and and you know it's funny we didn't I. This part was not intentional, but it ended up being called glass castle and when you look at our brewery from in the inside and how we're surrounded by the windows and you you came and saw it it's actually like because the brewery portion of our space is on a second floor above all this other stuff and it's surrounded 100 percent by windows it is the glass castle yeah i mean that's i assume that's just what the name (laughs) actually referred to as simple as (laughs) it it's it's certainly fitting because um we designed my joke is that we designed the brewery to be able to make this beer and in doing so we can make pretty much any other style of beer that we want to. Um, so we have a 15 barrel brew house that is a three vessel system, uh, which allows us to more readily batch process into 
you know, double and triple brew yeah. to 30 and 45 barrel fermenters. Um, but it also allows us to run a decoction mash for our Pilsner, which, uh, you know, in 2019 is not a popular opinion on how to make beer. <laughs> um, but uh, we really wanted to follow traditional practices for making this beer. Um, so we do first wort hopping. Um, you know, we firm or we uh, lager it for like five weeks. Um, so we we pretty much pulled out all the stops and trying our damnedest to make this a very classic Czech Pilsner. It's really good. Thank you. It's very crisp and clean. Thank you. Are are those Cicerone level descriptors? Nailing it. I'm halfway there. Nailing it. (laughs) But no, it's seriously, it is really, really good, but it's, you can see through it. Yeah. That's weird. Especially (laughs) in the age of uh, (laughs) hazy IPA. It's a, it's a different, it's a, you know, it's a different, it's a thing that, um, you know, I think we're, we're, it's a beer that we're really proud of. It, I, um, I would say for the longest time, I never would have wanted to drink a Pilsner. Um, but it was recently like, um, I really like the guys at Diamondback and they made that focus on loggers and uh, their tagline, slow beer or what I can't remember the whole tagline. Um, so I started getting them more often when I would stop in and see them and getting a much larger appreciation for. And now it seems like every brewery uh, is starting, maybe not every, but a lot of breweries are starting to go back to adding those into their portfolio. Or if they're, if they already had them more showcasing them and it, it's, it's actually nice to just have a nice clean non palate wrecking beer every once in a while. That's how I feel. And my own trajectory and falling in love with beer, um, you know, started with just drinking a lot of, um, you know, stuff out of funnels. We'll leave it, (laughs) we'll leave it there or in the context of a a game maybe. Uh, and then I drank a lot of rolling rock. That's what, that's what we drank at college. (laughs) I had a rolling rock and I also, the big one for us was Keystone light, (laughs) (laughs) which, um, looking back is, you know, is what it is. Uh, but we, you know, when I was falling in love with beer, I I was fortunate enough to get to do some traveling and spend some time in Europe. And that was really, um, one of the sort of foundational kind of moments where I was like, wow, there's something to this. And I'm really drawn to this, um, idea that you can have uh, a tasty beverage, um, you know, to go along with your food or to, uh, you know, just, relax with friends and and it was much more like normalized and socialized in Europe in a way that I wasn't accustomed to perceiving it as as quite as much here especially because I was younger at the time Um, and then you know learning that I came back and started really uh, tasting anything and everything I could find um, and, and homebrewing even while I was still in college. Um, and I just, you know, I think I'm, I have a bit of an obsessive personality in anything I do. And so I became really obsessed with beer and went through this arc where first I was really into the big, sweet alcohol bombs, like dogfish head Midas touch. Um, you know, and, and that was also a financial equation for me, you know, as a college kid, senior year of college, (laughs) it was like, cool. 
I can buy this four pack of dogfish head Midas touch, which at the time I think was still right at like 10 bucks or maybe even just a hair below. I can drink like two of these and be set for the night, you know, cause it's like 9%. So it's funny you should say that cause the, uh, Richard Cobble, the, one of the founders of midnight run has an actual equation that he used <laughs> for the cost to alcohol percentage <laughs> to for beer that he would drink. <laughs> I mean, that's how I got, you know, that was, I, I wouldn't say that's how I got in, but that was certainly a contributing factor once I got back. Um, and so I, uh, you know, that's kind of, those were the beers that I started with that also included some of the Belgians and, and I've always liked some of the funkier flavors associated with those. And then, I kind then of, this is the opposite. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I went through an arc, you know, I, I did that and then I went into IPAs and then I went into huge stouts and then I, although it's 5%, that's a, that's a higher ABV Pilsner. Yeah. It's, it's, it's enough to know that it's there, but yeah. it's not, you know, it's not super high gravity. And so we, um, we like for me, it was, it was a situation where, I think I kind of went all the way through it, you know, and then, and then I really started to find an appreciation for more nuanced beers. Part of that happened when I spent some time in Scotland and, um, you know, Scotland is not known for real ale in the same way that, um, you know, uh, maybe like parts of London and otherwise would be, but there's a ton of delicious real ale there too. And, um, understanding that you could have a really great drinking experience and have it be one that didn't have to knock you over the head, but could actually be subtler, more gentle flavors is when I started to kind of like get to where I am now, where, you know, I have a, an appreciation for pretty much everything. Um, you know, I, I see all beer as having a place in the world. Um, and even the bad beer has a place in the world because it's something from which we learn. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, or to make yours look better. <laughs> <laughs> hey, <laughs> um, but yeah, so with that in mind, it, what you'll catch me drinking more often than not, especially at the brewery and in my day to day life is a really tasty Pilsner. That's just the beer that I have landed at where I just, I go for that all the time. Like my staff now has it down where if I uh, sit down at the bar to talk to a regular at the end of the day or something, just bring a Pilsner over to they you. They don't even, they don't even ask me half the time. <laughs> <laughs> they just put it in front of me. Um, you know, so that's definitely where my heart is. All right. So Cicerone level three, what do you start getting into at that level? Well, bef- okay. Here's what I'll say. Level two has oftentimes associated with it some professional incentives or benefits. I think it communicates a thing within the beer industry that there was a time where it didn't, Cicerone, when it was first starting, didn't have as much weight, not as many people knew about it. Now it, it really, for everybody in beer, it, it means something. And I don't think there's anyone that would disparage. If somebody's gone through the trouble of getting their certified Cicerone, they know that that person worked pretty hard for it. Um, and oftentimes that might have a role in you landing a job at the newer spot that you're going to. If you want to go from bartender to bar manager, when a new restaurant opens, having your certified Cicerone is going to make a difference, especially if they have a beer focus when 
you're submitting your resume for an application. You know, if you want to move from um, at like a craft oriented distributor, if you want to move from sales guy to sales manager or territory manager, you know, getting your certified is going to make a difference really and truly. Um, I think getting past that level is both so demanding and so rarefied now still. And I think this will change over time where it, I think the more the people that are going for the advanced level or for the master level beyond that, I think most of them are in it for the sense of personal achievement. I think that's where you make the transition where you say, okay, maybe this will benefit me professionally. Maybe it won't. I don't care. This is something I'm interested in doing. Yeah. Me- it, the the edge you receive is minimal compared to going from one to two. Yeah, like going from one to two is a meaningful difference. Going from two to three, it's not to say that you couldn't do it, but to even have a decent chance of going from two to three, you should pr- like you would be working in the industry, okay. or you would be a very very adamant kind of enthusiast, home brewer, you'd be reading books all the time. I mean, it's a, it's like a, it's a, I find it to be like a self exploration when you make the decision to go for the advanced level, because it is very, very demanding. Um, and I don't know anybody who, and, and that's not to say that, that it hasn't happened, but I don't know anybody that doesn't work at a somewhat managerial level it within the industry that has the designation. Okay. Um, and I think you, they do make some of this center around real world problems that you deal with in the beer industry in terms of preserving beer quality and service. And so things like that, I simply just wouldn't know because it, it would never come up in my life. Like you probably are doing yourself a, like it would be very hard to pass both the second and the third level. If you don't have a pretty solid understanding of how commercial draft beer systems work, for example, you know, so like you, you really have to invest the time to teach yourself and to get the hands-on experience with those systems to, to get through the testing of the higher levels. So just having a lot of beer knowledge isn't enough. You need to know how to serve it or how, how to get the beer into the glass at the appropriate way. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, and I think that's where, you know, that's kind of where the, the cutoff point is. I think a, you, you stand a much better chance getting through the higher levels if you have a couple years of professional experience within the industry working at either a brewery or a, a bar and restaurant. So is, is three just more in depth of two or is it uh a whole adding in a whole nother aspect of beer knowledge. Three is much more in depth. Okay. Yeah. There's um, three is like the jump when, you know, in two you're identifying off flavors and you're required to learn about the four or five most common ones and what their properties are. And then you have to, um, you have to, uh, choose them from an answer key during your flavor, eval- your, your tasting evaluation. Um, in three, you have to uh, blindly identify 
a set of, I think it's like somewhere between 14 or 16 off flavors. So just pick it out of the glass. No answer key, okay. no nothing. Here's eight samples. You have to identify all eight of them properly. Um, or whatever, maybe maybe my numbers on this are wrong, but it's it's. But the, yeah, that's the gist of it. The level of difficulty is like it it jumps like orders of magnitude when you start. Every jump you make, it's a pretty massive jump. Um, and then like, even for like the advanced exam, you know, you're doing an in-person interview with a master Cicerone, or in my case, you know, I'm sitting across the table from Ray Daniels, the guy who created the program. And he's asking <laughs> me to tell him about uh, British mild, right? <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, you know, so you're like, you're, you're sitting there and you're kind of like, um, uh, like, because you, you know that information is even in your head, but it's not even good enough for that information to be there your memory recall and your ability to converse about it has to be top of the tongue for you to pass the exam. So it, it gets really hard. Yeah, I definitely would not be able to do that. I'm not good at memorizing stuff. It's I, having a, an iPhone in my pocket that I can quickly <laughs> find anything in 30 seconds has completely destroyed my memory. <laughs> <laughs> I find that when I'm driving places, like even trying to get here today, I just, I wish I knew more about where I was at any given <laughs> time, but, um, I've, I've certainly fallen privy to, uh, leaning on my Google maps all the time. So then at the master level, it, does that, so I watched, um, Netflix has one of the, or maybe I watched both of them about becoming a small gay. Um, and I just thought it was ridiculous how you could possibly taste something and then like be able to pinpoint what region of the world it came from. And like all these things that in my mind, there's no way I would ever be able to do. Is there aspects of that type of things in the, in the master Cicerone level where you have to taste something and be like, Oh, this is a, some obscure style of beer that you may never have tasted before or what's that test like one of the hardest so you do eight tasting exams for the master level and um each one of those runs 15 minutes long and it's stretched out over the whole exam is stretched out over two days and um i uh, i can actually say that i took the master cicerone exam um, and did not pass. <laughs> and uh, I'm very proud of the fact that at all throughout the various levels that I have failed some part of it or not been able to get through on the first try because it, I don't, for me, that's not, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to be the guy that just aces everything right yeah. away. I think I'm more just going to bull my way through something. Have you ever watched that? sommelier oh i loved documentary. it i loved it so I, it was like that guy had like failed it like three times or something on the tasting portion of it that was yeah. just so frustrating <laughs> it is it's super frustrating it's you know it's um it's it's really hard but you know one example of one of the eight tasting exams they put eight samples in front of you and they say okay here's eight samples of beer 15 minutes ready set go blind you have to identify the BJCP style. So to give you some context, if they were to put a palish colored beer in front of you, you have to identify whether this is a Czech lager or whether this is a German pills or whether this is a Kolsch or whether this, you know, so we're talking about 
I would just find that annoying. Very, <laughs> it's hard. It's yeah. hard. It, you're talking about very nuanced differences that create lines between various styles of beer. Yeah, like that 99.99% of the population would have absolutely no idea about. So I guess that's why it makes it such a prestigious um, certificate to hold. Yeah. And, you know, there's little tricks that you learn along the way. And, and, um, I, you know, the, the one thing that I liked about the Psalm movie is they really highlighted, um, how these guys, you, you, it's deductive reasoning on steroids is really what it is, is it's, you have to have, you start getting to get to, I would say this to pass the master Cicerone, you can't just learn about beer. You have to learn about how to learn. Like, because you're storing so much information yeah. in your head for the period of time leading up yeah, to, to and during. be able to meld what you, what you know it's not, com- com- combining it with what you know it is, and then trying to work from there to deduce w- the possibilities of what it might be. Yeah. So someday, maybe once, uh, maybe once Silver Branch is a little older, I'll, I'll, I'll pull the books <laughs> back out and start getting serious about trying to take that again. So I would even say like how it's got to be even really difficult to train from that because how, like, how do you know like w- what you've been tasting for like the, those differences you listed that that's exactly what they're looking for. I mean, it's, it's hard to even find what is a 100% like while you're drinking it is a 100% represent representation that's going to give you those minute differences between the different styles. I think of it, I don't know how other people do this, but I can tell you how I do it for me. I look at all beer styles as kind of like a a fluid matrix of possibilities, you know, and within each individual beer style, there's a smaller or wider range along that matrix that you can identify certain things from. So like some beer styles, like Saison, perfect example, borderline defined by not having a definition, right? Because that's the beer that every brewer is like, well, it can be this and it can be that. It's kind of like a catch all. (laughs) Right. But certain things, um, German Hefeweizen is, you know, there's variation within it. Sure. But it's not that wide. Yeah. It's either you've got that banana clove thing going on and it's of a certain color and it's hazy in appearance and it's got a nice thick head that lasts for a long period of time or it doesn't, you know? And so you, you kind of, for me, understanding that the box is different for each one and then trying to find the markers that indicate whether it would be in or out of that box, so to speak. Okay. Um, you know, so like when I'm trying to figure out, let's say I taste like a, a stout and the alcohol portion is masked really well. So some people will make an Imperial stout that's like eight and a half percent, but it just tastes like a really tasty stout. There's a little trick because if it's done, if it's a really talented brewer and they really do mass the alcohol, it could be hard to differentiate eight and a half percent from 6%. So maybe you'll get it on the palate, but more likely if you take the glass and you hold it like a certain, oh, here, I'll put some beer in it. Um, this is a trick that I learned. Um, thank you. 
So if you take if you take the glass and uh, you hold it along the side and you look at the bottom line of where the bubbles are and you hold it out like that and then you pull the glass up, oftentimes in a clean glass, the rate at which those bubbles will move along the side of the glass up indicate whether it's a high alcohol beer or not. So a 6% stout would move, you know, relatively similar to this one. It would just kind of shoot right up. If you ever hold a really high gravity stout and you turn it up fast like this, those bubbles take a long time to move up the side oh, of the glass. I never knew that. So there's, I mean, there's like all sorts of tricks. There's um, an off flavor that you can detect by dick, dipping your uh, finger in the beer and wiping it on your skin because of a reaction that happens with your skin. You're, it would smell like pennies. You know, so there's, I mean, it's it, it's like a sport. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, yeah. tasting is like you have to have a tool set of tricks to help you identify all these different deciding factors. So you have to train. Absolutely. <laughs> Beer Olympics. <laughs> all right. So now that we know that um, Silver Branch has a ridiculous amount of beer knowledge behind it, <laughs> we can actually go back to talking about Silver Branch after I took us down that extremely long rabbit hole. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Um so you're working at, um, I forgot the name of it already, in uh, Adams, I at least remember it's Adams Morgan. Oh, Trist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Trist. Yeah. One word. Come on, Chris. <laughs> um, so was Silver Branch your next thing, or was there more in there? And actually, when, when did you meet, how and when did you meet Christian? So... I left Trist to take the job as the opening bar manager for um, Republic in Tacoma Park. And they just, for the first time this year, uh, won the um, Restaurant Association um, Beer Program of the Year Award, which, like, big ups to them, big ups to Jake, Danny, um, Julio, that whole crew. Um, And that was when I think my luck intersected with my desire to uh, really propel my beer career forward because having been a beer buyer in D.C., this is back in 2013, having been a beer buyer in D.C., which is the Wild West, you kind of get beer from everywhere. You know, the distribution laws are super lax. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into it. You can drive to wherever, just pick some stuff up and bring it back to sell. <laughs> it's It really is the Wild West. Um, and then moving to Montgomery County. Which is the opposite. <laughs> and sort of learning that they're, and, and, you know, which was partially a byproduct of, the state of Maryland, but learning that there was a completely unique set of laws around alcohol distribution in the county um, was kind of like, wait, where am I? Like, I immediately was like, this is so different. Like in D.C., you had beer or liquor or wine of any kind around the from around the world at your fingertips. And in Montgomery County, it was a bit of a desert. Um, And so I think... uh, in that process, I was really researching like, okay, well, how do I, you know, when we first opened, I put six beers on tap within the first like month or two, it ended up that it was hard to get beer and I didn't know my way around the system yet. And so I just ran out of beer on tap and I was down to like four taps and it was never designed to be that way. It was like, we're supposed to have six beers on tap the whole time. 
Um, and so I'm doing all this research and I stumble across this article that this group of people are opening a brewery in Silver Spring uh, by the name of Denizens. And that's when I first met Julie Verratti. Um, and I reached just awesome. Yeah, she's great. And I reached out to her and I was like, Hey, I'm, you know, probably just an overzealous, uh, <laughs> beer buyer at, uh, this little spot in Tacoma park. And she would w- like basically just brought me along. She's like, here's what we're doing. This is, you know, political action one one Like, um, you know, she was like, let's get in front of these legislators and tell them why it's important that we can self-distribute. And, um, July 1st, 2014, that was the first time it was legally possible in Montgomery County. Never forget. We put Southside Rye on tap at Republic. I drank way too many of them <laughs> just out of my sort of exuberance and excitement for that. Um, and then that was really fascinating because, that gave me the opportunity to interact with a lot of startup breweries that were going to start self-distributing. And I got to walk all of their spaces as they were opening or, you know, shortly after opening and Republic became a springboard for new breweries, small breweries that were self-distributing and a lot of people made their first entryway into self-distribution at Republic, you know, um, RAR. They weren't self-distributing until I did a tasting with JT back in the day and I first tasted Nectar and I was like, this is the IPA I've been waiting for. And he was like, we'll figure it out. And then basically- Graham's Graham's a big fan of Nance Coke. Yeah, and um, Legends gave him the free pass. They were like, cool, yeah, you guys can can self-distribute into Montgomery County, you know? And that was sort of, that was kind of the beginning of this, what is now, I would say, a tidal wave of self-distribution related um, businesses and sub-businesses, mostly because, you know, we got to put denizens on tap and uh, (laughs) we were committed to it. You know, I was, the moment I knew it was possible, it was like, there's something magical here. And everybody has always said that the beer scene in Montgomery County is whack and this, that, and the other. And I knew right then, the first time that we legally did it, that it was only going to be a matter of time before the beer scene would explode in Montgomery County. It definitely is. It took a while, but it's it's definitely taking off finally. <laughs> and um, to your earlier question, in that process, right as this was all beginning to happen, uh Christian, who was a brewer at Gordon Biersch, lived just up the street. So he could actually walk to Republic to come, you know, either have dinner with his wife or um, catch up with a friend at the bar, whatever. And so we just, Julie introduced us. And from that moment forward, it was just kind of, you know, we always stayed in touch. We were always keeping tabs on each other, asking what's going on, what are you up to these days? Um, And that's really where you know, our friendship and then ultimately business partnership uh, formed was kind of, you know, at Republic. Gordon Biersch has really produced a lot of brewery owners. Yeah. It's it's crazy how many, and I'm sure just like head brewers or brewmasters at other breweries, but there's, there's quite a few 
brewery owners that spent some sort of time at Gordon Beers. Yeah, and I think, you know, I I know it's an American-owned company, but certainly uh, embraces a lot of a German philosophy, um, and, you know, it's corporate. And from the hospitality side of things, when I see somebody that has worked at a corporate establishment for any amount of time, I'm like, cool, like, I know that you got good training. Like, and that's yeah. probably why they give them really robust training programs at Gordon Beerish and they sort of set a, a high standard. And so from the marketing side, they don't get as much kind of appreciation for, for the, the beer that they make. Um, but from the brewers that I know that have come out of Gordon Beerish, there's some, some of the best brewers I know. So where did the name silver branch come from? So that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was partially a byproduct of a cease and desist letter. So what was the original name that you wanted? Well, there was the original, original name was Two Worlds. And that was meant to hearken to um, something that you hear in the wine world a lot, which is the presence of the old world and the new world, um, which is sort of like what once was and what is going to be, um, roughly. That didn't work for a variety of reasons. And so we ultimately came up with Parallel World, uh, which kind of eschewed some of those same ideas yeah. uh and we got approval from you know the u.s patent and trademark office we're like really good to go we're telling that to our investors we've got our logo designed um you know we're doing all that stuff and then in another brewery which shall not be named uh basically said don't use it like we have this and we will sue you um and I can't even think of what that could be. Was it is it a big brewery? I feel in the interest of just <laughs> we'll laying talk later. Low. We'll, we'll talk yeah. later. Uh, so so basically, you know, our and our trademark lawyer believed he was like, you know, on the merits of the case, you guys have a good chance. And wait, because you you had you trademarked it? The, the patent and trademark office yeah. gave it to us. Yes, yeah, right. So it feels like. We got you it. Had a good we got <laughs> it fair and square. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, that was one of the most humbling and important lessons that I think I ever learned. And I have so much respect for Christian for being the more level-headed one about this particular issue. Sometimes we take turns. <laughs> yeah. But um, on this one, he was like, "Look, we're not open yet. We're not a brand. We don't have a strong affiliation with anything." I, you know. And we cannot afford to fight a hundred thousand dollar legal battle before yeah. we're open. And I, he was one hundred percent right, you know. And I think, yeah, if you had already opened, had a bunch of merchandise, tons of cans designed around a name, maybe then it's worth fighting for. But just being uh, an idea at that point, it kind of makes it hard to and swallow spending that much money. This, I mean, like, unless that was, like, was your last name or something. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And we didn't, you know, we didn't, yeah, you're right. So it, it, we didn't have that that particular issue. And so we're just like, okay. So in the process, I think name naming and, and learning what goes into a name and learning what gravitates to people and what meaning sits behind it was this whole like dive. I mean, and if you wanna, I would say to anybody who's thinking about opening a brewery someday, 
I hope you're interested in learning about a lot of random stuff because <laughs> if you're only interested in learning about beer, I don't think that opening a brewery would be the best choice. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much that goes into it that you have to be willing to learn about anything. Um, and so Silver Branch is, we're in Silver Spring and we're very conscientious of the community around us. And our whole goal is to um, impart a taproom experience that serves the community. And so one idea that I'm fond of talking about is I say that Christian and I came up with this concept, right? Silver Branch. But over time, our employees and the guests that come and spend time with us and our customers that buy our beer at the store, they are going to have so much more say in what we ultimately become than Christian and I ever will because they'll gravitate to what we're doing well and they'll communicate to us what they like and they will ultimately comprise everybody that cares for us and 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 is sort of excited about us you know and so um i think with that in mind knowing that we wanted to create a micro regional association was really important so silver just made perfect sense it was just it was going to be silver or is going to be spring and we've vetted a whole bunch of different names, and we really liked leading with that idea. Yeah. Um, and then the branch element is actually uh, stems from this old English and German tradition of putting a branch outside, um, which is kind of like the original open sign that um, predated a commercial beer industry. So when people were still oftentimes making it as like a household item, and neighbors or passerby or travelers would come through, they would hang a branch out as a way of saying like, hey, come on in, I have beer. Um, so it was, it was a symbol. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, fun, um, it was a fun little thing. And so for us, it represents kind of our welcoming, inclusive, hospitality-oriented. See, I feel like that's a better story than parallel world so you you ended up with a better name anyway oh 100 (laughs) percent. i you know and that i think it was just emotionally we were caught up i i was super caught up because it was just you start i mean it becomes your existence in a way that you you know uh you you can't help it if you i feel like if you're doing it right it's it's it it's you is is invested in it did you did you come up with the name and logo and everything on your own or did you hire a company to do that so we identified in the process before opening that having a strong brand in today's market would be really important. And I mean, it's almost probably 50% <laughs> in the in terms of your beer and the image and marketing and brand awareness. Yeah, it's a huge part. And we knew that that was a big part of what we would have to do. Um, and so we... Uh, just kind of like any problem we encounter, we just tackled it by getting some books, finding some articles. Mm-hmm. And there's um, a couple, there's a branding agency that puts out like a, you know, here are the questions that you have to answer for yourself to beget or start to understand what your brand is going to ultimately look like and what it's going to represent. So we did a bunch of that stuff as sort of like foundational groundwork and then we hired a branding agency and i think the fact that we did all that foundational groundwork of you know it's not just you know me or my vision and it's just not it's not just christian and his vision it's the sort of amalgamation of our two visions combined in terms of 
saying who we are. And one of the most important things that came out of that is because you're, you're, it's sort of like just staring at a completely blank canvas, you know, or a blank page, you know, writers and artists struggle with this a lot. Um, and the first thing that we identified is not who do we want to be, but who it's easier to say, who do we not want to be? And foundationally this idea of being inclusive and welcoming board anybody who shows even an inkling of interest in learning about beer and creating a culture that's very like accepting was foundationally important to who we wanted to be. We did a much better job than the city of Frederick uh, because our uh, genius uh, politician spent $45,000 on an abomination of a logo that I think it, Graham, is it one of the most commented stories we've ever run? I did. It's it it it's way more comments than we typically get on the newspaper's Facebook page, and I was scrolling through them just trying to find someone who had something positive to say because you know like negativity is usually louder on the internet. There wasn't a single positive comment about, but like it is in art and things are definitely objective, but this is there's it is absolutely horrible. So congratulations on not hiring a firm in Jacksonville, <laughs> Florida that charges a bunch of money to come up with a horrible logo and tagline. Thank you. Thank you. We, uh, <laughs> we, we vetted our, our agencies pretty, pretty aggressively. The um, city of Frederick could probably ask you for some advice. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the building you're in, what, what's that? What cross section are you at? So we're right on the corner of Colesville and Second Avenue in okay, Silver Spring. How close are you to the where Noah is? So Noah is sort of squarely in between us and Denizens along East West Highway. Okay, so I think, but not not like right next door to you. It's a couple blocks down. Yeah. So there's actually in Silver Spring. There's two entrance slash exits. At the Silver Spring Metro Station, one of them, if you come out of it and walk right up the steps, you're pretty much on the plaza that we're in. Okay. So, and then the Noah one's at the other. Correct. Okay. Because I worked, I used to work in the building right next to Noah. And when I was there, like everything looked so different and we were walking and it was night and I was confused because it was also like 15 years ago. I was like, is this the building I worked in? Or because I would have been leaving work much more uh, fun if a brewery was on the first floor because I, I rode the mark. Yeah. In, and you can drink as much as you want on the mark. So it, it would have made the ride from Silver Spring to Frederick much more much enjoyable. More <laughs> <laughs> but that, that was something... Um, when we visited and I think it was before you had your grand opening, I was there, right? Like it was, you were it was like really early on. Yeah. Um, I think it was the first time I was at a brewery that was in high rise. Yeah. So that, I mean, that is a whole trippy concept unto itself. Um, and we, this is a little bit of the restaurant side of, me and and our understanding in terms of what we wanted you know it's it's when you're a brewery there's a concept um or i i kind of believe that on friday saturday sunday you have a lot of weekend brewery traffic certainly certain locations are better than others but 
you are going to, if you're making good beer and you're making people happy, you're going to be able to be busy on those days. A lot of breweries struggle with having a lot of space that they can't really do much with on Tuesday night. And so we were really intrigued by this particular location when we were exploring this one and a bunch of others because we were saying to ourselves, hey, like, this is so centrally located and so close to the metro and has office tenants above it. Like, we could be busy on Tuesday, like, for happy hour. Um, And so that was one of the major drivers for why we were there. Uh, Another one was if you believe that when, when you open a brewery that you get to have a cultural impact, which I very strongly do. And in so many ways, the decisions that you make, what you do, what you don't do, what you say, inject something into the world. And if you're closer to more people, you have more opportunities to brighten somebody's day or to give them a positive experience. Yeah. You could, you can catch those people that just made their commute out of whatever awful job they spent the day at a DC in DC at hop off of the, the Metro and sit down and have a, finally a bright spot in their day. <laughs> there you go. You know, and it's, uh, I think that's really important for me. I mean, that's something that when I was bartending, I got such a kick out of like the idea that I could, impact somebody's day even in such a small way to make them just feel a little better relax a little more kind of take the tension out was just so rewarding you know and I think that was I never got tired of that and I think when you when you are centrally located you just you get more opportunities to have have people yeah stop by and kind of get that has that is that worked out is it what you envisioned as being like people getting off the Metro on their way home from work, stopping in for a quick break or to grab a six pack or. Yeah. It's funny because our original business model was more, um, originally we were going to be a little further out. And then when we started thinking about things and we started thinking about wanting to have a really awesome tap room, um, we were hoping that, it would pan out the way it has so far, which is that, you know, we're very fortunate in that we've been pretty busy pretty much Monday through Sunday, um, every week. Awesome. Yeah. So that feels really good. Um, but we get a lot of big groups cause we have a very large tap room space. So we get a lot of people that are, yeah, it feels like it just goes on forever. <laughs> <laughs> like an entire office. Yeah. We'll get like 20 people come in, you know, we'll get a group of 25 people that, just drop in unannounced. And if you're a full scale restaurant, that's a very hard thing to deal with. Um, but we're a brewery and you know, we offer snacks and our focus is beer and service. And, um, with that in mind, you know, I think people like that. People know that they can lean on us for those types of experiences. Well, uh, Graham informs me we've been talking for a really long time. <laughs> so I think we just need to have a second Silver Branch episode at some point when maybe it's not as crazy for Christian. Both of you can come on so we can talk a little bit more depth than Silver Branch. Plus, it would, you've only been open for, what, a month? 
two months now. Uh, Three? Four, four? I think four months. March okay. 3rd. We officially opened March 3rd. We'll just put an ish on and then I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it still feels like a blur no matter oh, how I long. can't even imagine how... And I, it seems like when you hit the three-year mark, that's that's when you can let your foot off the gas a little bit because then you, you've been able to build up enough of a workforce around you that it, not as many things are, are on uh, your shoulders as the the founder and uh, operator of a brewery. We'll see. <laughs> Knowing myself... You'll um, still have the pedal all the way to the floor. <laughs> I think what ends up happening to me is... I uh, I get to whatever that mountaintop is, and I take silver like a, branch north. I take <laughs> yeah, I take a big deep breath, and I'm like, on to the next yeah. one. <laughs> well, congratulations uh, on opening, um, and this pilsner is absolutely delicious. I can't wait to try the other ones. Although we do have a, I, I haven't asked my normal questions for a while. So while I'm pouring you the shot of whiskey that I'm going to make you do. Uh, we'll just do a small shot so it's not too bad. This is um, a whiskey I made with McClintock Distilling in Frederick. It's a single malt hop-infused uh, whiskey that I think um, we talked about this, but I don't know if I'm supposed to share, but I'm going to anyway. Probably going to release it December 7th, December 8th maybe because I'm a narcissist and that's my birthday. So I told him that would be a really good time to – uh, release it, and that's right around when it had been in the barrel for two years. Um, we have a name picked out, but I don't think I'm supposed to share that yet. Uh, but so, favorite Maryland non-silver branch beer. I have a good guess of what you're going to pick, but what is your favorite Maryland non-silver branch beer? Oh, uh, I have. It's a very nostalgic beer for me, but I've always enjoyed what is now known as Beasley from the Brewer's Art. Okay. Um, form, was, my guess was wrong. Form, what'd you guess? I was going to go with Denizen's uh, Rye. but I, I That's another one that I have a ton of nostalgia for because yeah. it just it meant so Launched much in life. Everything. Yeah. But um, I, 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 you know, I fell in love with the Brewer's Art like when I first moved back to this area. Um, and I was just like, whoa, it's amazing how also how many brewers or brewery owners have that same thing that they, they pick brewers art as a huge influence to them or like just a beer, beers that they admire. It's just a damn good beer, man. At the end of the day, it's just a really, really good beer. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming up and chatting with me. Um, we definitely need to do another episode. Hopefully, maybe Christian can join us. We can get a little more in depth of, although I think um, everyone at this point knows for sure that there is no <laughs> lack of beer knowledge, hospitality. You, you know you're going to get good beer, and you're going to be welcomed and treated right if you go to Silver Branch. Cool. Thank you. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Cheers. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh, my God. That's good.